Mike Salinas grew up quickly, picking up scrap metal from the side of San Jose highways with his dad back in the 1960s. There's an affection for his upbringing in his voice, despite the cuts of responsibility coming remarkably early in his youth. By 15, he was on his own. His dad gave him a work ethic and chipped to succeed at all costs. Nearly 50 years later, and he's sitting down to talk about how it all started, flanked on either side by two of his four daughters. On the left is Jasmine Salinas, a top alcohol dragster. On the right, the younger Gianna, who competes in pro stock motorcycle. In the middle is dad, Michael. And he decided at the age of 40 to become a top fuel dragster. This is their story. I grew up here in San Jose. Um, we were, did you ever see those um, people driving around in pickup trucks picking up scrap metal? Oh, I, I live in Venice and all, all the time, for sure. Yeah. Okay, that was us in the 60s. Okay. So my, my father, we did that as a part-time deal. And um, he would, we would drive around and, you know, he made up routes for 55-gallon drums and we would have scrap metal in different places, shops and things like that, and as little kids. So we, we grew up doing that. And so it was part of what we did every day. And other kids got to go have a life and we had to work seven days a week. Typical Hispanic family. Um, you know, you have, there were seven of us in the family and, you know, you worked your butt off. My mom would work at the cannery. And then she'd work, she'd work at the cannery during the day and she'd work at the hospital at night or vice versa. Um, sleep a few hours in between and she did that seven days a week. And my dad worked at a ladder company and after the ladder company, he would go do the scrap metal business at night. And we would do it during the day and no driver's license, no, uh, <laughs> no insurance, nothing like that. And we were just trying to make it, you know, trying to feed the family. So we, um, did that for quite a few years and everything and uh, grew up and started going and um, probably at the age of 15 I come home and my dad said I taught you everything that you you need to know time to move out and you got to go make your own so the where our existing business is now um, I was basically a homeless kid at 15 living in the property that it was a railroad track property and um, we would hang out at the railroad tracks when we had time and so I stood in a little shed here. And funny thing is we've been in business 40 years and this place that we built our brand new facility is where I, I slept as a kid and didn't realize until my wife brought it to my attention, you know? So we worked and we still work a lot every day, seven days a week. Um, it's just part of our heritage and who we are as a family and who we're trying to build things, you know? Um, but the, but, Growing up, growing up, I started my own deal. Um, I went and worked for a company. Um, I wanted to see what it was like to work for somebody. So my dad said I could still work for him, but I can't live in their house. Mm. So I, w I went and become a janitor. I was a janitor at a, a place, um, at a place that made uh, McDonald's uh, secret sauce. And um, so I was their janitor, maintenance guy, um, fab guy. And, uh, you know, uh, all around, you know, caretaker of the place. And I would work there long hours. I did that for a year. And then I decided I'm going to go start my own business. And took off and we started. Um, I, I was really good with cars. Built, built a 67 RS SS Camaro. And I sold that car. 
to go buy our first Peterbilt truck. And um, my wife had some money and I had some money. And so we put it together and we bought one truck and she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, so we went and bought a Peterbilt truck and we were hauling junk cars. And we would run, we would run junk cars up and down to the scrapyard, from the uh, scrapyards to the main mill that used to uh, get rid of them, shred them up and ship them overseas. And we, we, we did that. Um, I started off making $125 a, a load. I would do five loads a day. And then the guys knew me because when I was a little kid, I, all the wrecking yards that were in our area, I would push a shopping cart with used starters, generators, and carburetors, and shoot brake shoes. And I would push it over there and sell them to them as a kid so we'd have money for food. And uh, just, they remembered me, so they gave me contracts. And so good breaks, people, I had a good reputation as a kid and growing up as a young man. Um, one of the guys, he knew me since I was seven years old and he told me, well, I'm selling the business. There's 3,000 cars here. And for two years, you can have them all, all the money. So we went from making $125 a load to $1,200 a load. And so we were doing, still doing five a day, five a day. And so we were making good money and I knew that was only short lived. So I started buying dumpsters so we can go into the scrap metal business with dumpsters. An earthquake in the late 90s hit China. Salinas puts the date at about 1996 and that's when the demand for scrap metal absolutely plummeted. It was the wrong time for this kind of economic hit. Um, so what we did was, uh, we've been in business 40 years. We have, so we went, we went from scrap metal to garbage. Now we're in the garbage business because the scrap metal market was going up and down and we hit a couple of spots that were really bad that, um, that the markets changed and we were really, really busy. And all of a sudden, overnight, we lost 90% of our income coming in. And I just, at that time, I just spent $3 million on equipment, all new excavators, loaders, trucks, and the market crashed. So what we, year was this? Uh, I think that was in 90, 96. Wow. Okay. 96. I think it was in 96. And um, the markets, well, actually, when the cool big earthquake happened, in, in China, that earthquake happened, and so they stopped buying scrap metal. They stopped buying scrap metal from us. And uh, so we basically owed on a lot of equipment, and we were still doing the same work, but no the metal wasn't worth anything because nobody was taking it. So we were bringing it into our facility and just stocking it up, stocking it up. <laughs> and it's the same facility we're using today. Um, it got bigger and bigger, and so we're getting ready to lose our house, all of our equipment. We're just getting ready to lose everything. And um, so little side note, I don't drink, I don't smoke. All we do is work and I, I can't sleep. I have a hard time sleeping. So, well, I would work 20 hour days, seven days a week. And so even working 20 hour days, seven days a week, um, you know, we were late on, we were late on the house payment. Uh, we were seven months late on all the equipment payment. So I called all the finance people up and told them, this is what I'm, this is my plan. This is what I'm trying to do. And that gave me another four months to try to figure it out before we start losing everything. 
So I told these guys, I said, I'll tell you what, you guys could come and pick up the stuff. And they said at that particular time that, and, and everybody was in the same pro having the same problem. And they said the yards and the repo yards were too full. They just said, make a small payment on them and we legally can't take them back. Their finance guy told me that. Wow. So I said, okay. So instead of making a $2,000 or $3,000 payment, he, I was making a $100 payment and legally they couldn't take it back because I'm still making a payment. Hmm. And so we were, make, we, were, we were going and it was getting rough because there was no money coming in. And, and at that time, buying food on credit card was like a no-no. That means that you're at the bottom of the barrel. And I remember walking into the grocery store and we bought, you know, the girls were small. We bought food on a credit card and I was like, a, that was like it. I, I had another two months or we were done. And so I come back and, you know, we're working and I'm still trying it Saturdays, Sundays, days, nights. And um, I'm at one of my customers that I've had for scrap metal and I'm putting the dumpster down and I see another dumpster truck putting the garbage dumpster next to me. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you didn't see this? You have all these customers. So I walked inside and talked to the gentleman and asked him, what do they charge you for the trash dumpster? And he goes, well, they charged me this much. And I said, I'll do it for $100 cheaper. And he goes, okay. Soon as that happened, it took me two years to pay everything off and get on my feet again. And so we're, we're running our business, right? Still doing trash. No license for the trash. No all this stuff, we're still going. And a customer follows me into my dump site for the scrap metal and follows me in. I pull on my scale. I was driving a truck. I pull on my scale to dump my metal. I'm um, excuse me, it's for trash. I pull my on the scale and a customer pulls in behind me and says, hey, how much do they charge at this dump site? I looked at him and I said, uh, what do they charge you at the other place? And he goes, uh, this much. I go, we'll do it for $10 cheaper. Tell all your friends. And that's basically how it started. And we didn't have nowhere to put the garbage. So what I did is I made a giant hole in the metal pile and threw all the garbage in the center. Yeah. Yeah. And we had to survive. Right. And so we had a mountain like you wouldn't believe. We had 3,000 ton of metal and 2,000 ton of trash. And so we kept on going, kept on going. And, and every day a new customer would come in. Every day a new customer would come in. And still to this day, honest to God, we have not advertised. It's all word of mouth. And we have hundreds of customers that come through every day. That's fantastic. It's just, and we still have that same philosophy of taking care of the customer, do the right thing, and be a good role model for, you know, all, all, all the people that are around you. You know what I mean? Mm. And so, like, one thing we do with this company because of my daughters, they have a little bit well-educated, different insight. So people come into our company and if they, they'll come to work here and we'll pay their four-year college. If they stay with us and they got training programs to help individuals. So it's a, it's a nice thing because I finished high school, but I can barely read and write. Hmm. You know, it's just, I have dyslexia and all this other stuff. So didn't know, didn't know that, but so... Hmm. This is how we wound up where we're at, and companies thriving. We have 100 employees here at this site and growing, um, and so um, and that's just one particular site. And we have two more that we're going to open up. Mm -hmm. But we've been here 40 years in the same site, and 
where we have dump sites, a dump site in the fifth largest economy in the world. Think about that one hmm. by hard work. Yeah. And just seizing on those opportunities. Um, and, you know, I definitely want to get to the racing for sure. Um, but I think while we're on the subject, um, I guess, you know, starting with Gianna, what's your perspective, not just on, you know, what your parents have built, how does that resonate with you? Um, well, I mean, I think we were actually, it was just funny because when we were moving everything out of our place for um, the fires and packing, we found a bunch of photos of, you know, our business and we found a bunch of photos of us as babies here. And it's always every, we have a couple of employees that have been with us since the beginning and some employees that are, have been here since Jasmine's been a baby and Jasmine's five years older than me. So they got to see, you know, our mom go through her pregnancies, bring us to work, everything like that. So it's really fun. It's, you know, this idea of creating a family business is really more than just us. We have really pushed it to our employees. And I think since we've been able to grow up around our business and see, you know, what our parents have been able to do and, you know, jumping at those opportunities and, you know, being faced with these um, bad situations and having to figure out a, a new way to, you know, solve a problem. I think that's resonated with me personally because, you know, I mean, life, you know, you don't know what life's going to going to throw at you. So you have to be ready to, you know, you know, come back and just, you know, create new, possibilities for yourself and and the other part that most people won't don't understand when we were having those hard times it's not like the girls are with us they were at work seven days a week at the dump sites and in the in the trucks and just going along for the ride but i will i will almost guarantee you that they felt all the pressure and the stress and everything we we had you know they felt all the uh, feelings that we were doing because they were, they can hear us on the phones talking to the bankers. They can, and they were little kids. It's not that they can't comprehend, but they, they, I believe we all went through it together and it's just not Monica and I, you know, and I, I that's, that's a part that most people forget just because the parents are having a hard time. You know, there was, there was, there was times where we're eating rice aroni and egg and beans and, you know, potatoes for a long time, you know, And what's that stress like? You know, I mean, I'm a, a my my kids are one and three years old, so I'm a, a relatively new father. But you know, going through that, you're starting a business and everything. Like Mike, what was that stress like for you and your wife? Well, nothing could ever be as bad as being homeless and not having food. So, to be honest with you, it wasn't that bad for me because it was rough. The average person, when you're at the bottom, you have nowhere to go but up. But you have to have a positive mental attitude every morning. You got to wake up and believe in yourself and who you are. And um, when you're looking at young kids, that you have young children, the biggest fear is you do not want them to make a mistake with your children. That you know that your parents you thought made mistakes with you, or you you want to give them every opportunity. So every generation. So here's a good thing: Hispanic people, we do not continue to grow our family in a positive way. Our culture changes it, okay? Because you want your kids to go to school and do things, but Hispanic people normally do not help each other get, get somewhere. You know, they do not help each other get anywhere. And we want, we want, we've changed that. Everybody that comes with us, we will help them do things and we want them to get ahead. We want to see them get ahead.
Mike isn't quick with the compliments. In this family, love is apparent, but accolades come through the process. But even without a bunch of praises, he will tell you that he would be nothing without his daughters. Jacqueline has worked her way up to become the company's CFO. Gianna runs the HR department. And all will tell you with a laugh that there would be no DoorDash orders without their help. The girls, they all, they graduated from college and it was, it was, it's a good thing and it shows good role models, you know what I mean, for other people. And Jasmine, you know, I definitely want to get your perspective on growing up during that time. Um, what was it like? Did you, did you realize kind of how things were? Because I think when we're kids, um, was just, we're just always happy, you know, I mean, even you know, during this COVID time, I look at my kids and they're like, oh, things are fine, you know, even though we're always stressed. What was it like growing up in that time? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's when you're a kid, whatever's happening around you, that's just kind of accepted as like the normal and you're just like, oh, well, this is life. Um, I mean, I, I remember, well, I don't really remember my dad actually being around like consistently for like the first 10 years of my life just because he was working so much and you know I knew who he was but even just like <laughs> it just he was he was gone you know even for 20 hour days and then on the weekends when he was home he would be sleeping or even during holidays and so it's like we never really got to build that relationship mm -hmm. until I was much older and I see it differently now with my younger sisters where he was a lot more present because he did he had worked in different ways you know um but yeah, I remember it's, it was something interesting that I, I didn't really recognize or realize what was happening until I got older and then started hearing about other kids' childhood and what it was like. And I mean, I remember just like after even like preschool and like um, elementary school, our dad would come and park down the street and pick us up in a massive like semi truck and he'd strap me and my sister with like no car seats into one seat together and i remember driving through the scales and he'd be like okay we're going through the scales i'm going to lower you down and we thought it was a game so we'd like lower our seats down so that the uh, cops at the scales couldn't see us um because it was two little like three and four year olds with no car seats and i just remember like sleeping a lot in the cars and just like spending a lot of time growing up in cars um commuting a lot and being with him when he was doing loads but for us it it was just normal um, now that I'm older, <laughs> looking back on all those like fun little memories, you know, it's, um, it definitely, I think shaped me in a lot of ways and shaped who I am and how I view hard work and making sacrifices. And I recognize a lot of sacrifices that my parents had to make, mm -hmm. uh, for us to still try to make what situation they were given and still try to make it great for us. And I mean, I still, it was funny like little moments like that but I still think it was a great childhood and then I guess a question for you know either you or, or Gianna is on the business side of things aside from racing um how um when did you guys start to get into the family business um and how big of a part of that is it for your life um at this moment um for me personally I never left worked here <laughs> I mean under the table I worked here um probably 10, 11, you know, just filing papers, different things. And then all voluntary, I'm sure, right? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, my payment was getting dinner at home. Um, but then in high school, I want to say I was about 14, 15 years old. Um, I started spending every week in here actually working and pretty much taking over the scale role. 
Um, and that's when I really started getting into the business. And then pretty much all through college, because I ended up going to San Jose State, which is about five minutes from here. Um, so I stayed very local. So I would work here after class. And then after I graduated, I decided to come back and take on more of a um, an HR role that really focuses on working with our employees and focusing on our engagement. Because being in Silicon Valley, it's we have a lot of businesses that we're competing with, you know, a lot of tech companies that can offer their employees, you know, all these really great benefits. So the smaller family owned businesses really have to, you know, work twice as hard to retain our employees here and make sure that they're happy. So I decided to take that role on and that's pretty much been, I've, I've never left, <laughs> I stay here. Um, but I've honestly, I, I've loved it. I've loved the opportunity to work with my family. Um, and I worked in college at some other places and I have a hard time working for other people. It's, it's very difficult, especially because we have such a strong say in, you know, changes that can be made here. You know, at another regular job, it's difficult because, you know, there's a, a hierarchy and a, um, a command ladder. Uh, so, you know, you can't just go to the top and be like, hey, you know, I think we should make this change. And I think it'll be really beneficial. Here we get to work together as a family and really decide, you know, what's best for our employees. And you really get to be a part of it, and which I love. Mike, as far as, you know, like talking about the hierarchy, you know, it, it must be easier maybe for you to kind of be like, yeah, you, you start, you've seen the progression, you know, like, you know, from 15 years old being um, immersed in the family business. So it's, it's kind of a no brainer to, you know, kind of hand things yeah. over, not necessarily hand things over, but um, um, bring your daughter along in that. Yeah. So basically Jacqueline is 28. So 27. We have okay. another sister that's in between us um, and she's actually really taken on pretty much the business um she's done an amazing job so that's and i've pretty much worked under her to try to learn how the business works but. so she's our, she's 27 years old now and last year we made her our cfo okay fantastic. So, so one thing for myself because i have five sisters growing up and i watched how women didn't have an opportunity to succeed in life and um, they had to work three to five times harder than that so what I did was my daughters have the opportunities here that they earned the right. I'm not just going to give it to them just because you're my daughter doesn't mean you get it. Jacqueline, they had to do all the grunt jobs. Jasmine worked out in the yard with the garbage out in the trash pile um, at 105 degree weather. And so we, we started them off. We don't give anything away. You earned the right. So Jacqueline earned the right to be our CFO. Um, she does pretty well and she's done pretty good in life. And she graduated from San Jose State with engineering degree and, and uh, finance. So what she brought to the table and I have actually, I don't compliment people very often. So um, it's just for one thing that uh, I believe that she's bringing to the table is the, the younger version of what my wife and I built and all the girls are bringing a different ideology and standards that we didn't see. So they're, I mean, they're doing things that are pretty amazing. And um, it's going over really well with the new hires, with the employees, and they have a structure 
not really understanding that we were teaching them how to run a company when they were little kids and watching what we do and listening to me on the phone and my wife on the phone and how we're going to pay this bill and move this over there and how we're going to do all these things. Um, they actually all became really good business people. So all the girls can run this company. And the only way, reason all of us are able to go racing is because Jacqueline, the one that's our CFO, she stays behind and takes care of the business. That's why we are able to lead and sacrifice. And then the way all of them are trying to set it up to where we can all, they can run it remotely. And so I'm old fashioned, notebooks, numbers, this type of thing. They're all computer and paperless. And, but our numbers are pretty darn awesome together because they understand what I'm like. And I'm like a dinosaur compared to what they do nowadays, but they're teaching me some really good things. I did my first, um, order on a computer this week for food. I showed him how to use DoorDash. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. it, was, it, was, yeah. it was good because I'm not computer literate, but you know, I look at the pictures in there, but it, it, it's, and look, we're just an old hardworking, no mess around family. We do everything together. We hang out together. We go on vacations together. We are just a real tight knit group because I always had this thing that if you, if you take care of each other, you, you can all grow together. Um, the nice part about it is, you know, what the girls bring to the table and what the comfort and the relaxation. We can breathe a little bit, Monica and I, that our daughters are taking care of things. And the nice part is they're making decisions within the company now that we're not a privilege to because we don't have, we trust them. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And they're doing some amazing things. If Mike Salinas's start in scrapping was unorthodox, so too was his passion for racing. Spending time with his uncle as a kid, he was introduced to the speed and power of high-powered automobiles. It just so happens it came on the way to a Black Panther party. All that after the break. And, um, you know, this is just such a fascinating part of the story, but, you know, I wanted to get to the racing and, you know, your family has been, you know, just scrapping in more ways, ways than one. When did, you know, people would be content to kind of have that story and that be it. But when did the racing start um, for you, Mike? And then, you know, um, where did that evolve and, and how did that start? And yeah. Well, okay. We're close to Fremont drag strip and my, my dad, so my dad, in the in the 40s and 50s, in the 50s and 60s, uh, raced at a circle track. He was actually there was two Hispanics, and my dad was one of them. Um, so he raced at the and it was Alviso Speedway, and San Jose Speedway. Um, my dad raced there when he was a when he was a young kid. We just saw some pictures of it. It's really funny. They were 16, 17, and 18. Um, him and my mom were married. He just got out of the army, um, bought a car for her, wanted to go racing. She went, she went with her sisters. So he took the car and went racing with it and crashed it that night. There's actually pictures of it. It's really funny. Um, totaled her car out. And, um, my dad was always a circle track guy. And so we would go 
as a young child, I would they would take me to the racetrack, even though my dad was working. And uh, it was just something that we did on the weekends. And then he eventually, we were racing still, but as a young kid, my dad would let my uncle babysit me. And this, we're talking the early 60s, like 65, 66, 67, 68. And my uncle was one of the, he was like a, a hippie activist. <laughs> and he was on his way to a Black Panther party in Oakland. And on the way there, he has to pass Fremont. So we pulled into Fremont because he hippies, hippies, surfing and drag racing were all at the same deal. And a lot, bunch of his friends were there that were going to go to the Black Panther meeting. And so he pulled in there and that was the first time I was introduced to racing as a young child, you know, as a young kid. And, and, it, and I got to see how I liked it, but we were the poor kids. We couldn't afford to do it. We didn't have no money. You know, we didn't really have the kind of money that it took to go racing. We were just happy to have food at the time. And as I grew up, I always wanted to go do it because my dad continued to race for years. And then I went on my own and I wanted to go race, but I had the structure as a young kid to be responsible and take care of my family and put my sacrifices of my goals, what I want aside until we're in a position to do it because I didn't want to sacrifice. I didn't want my kids to go through what I went through of not having food, not having things and all that stuff. So I wanted them to have a little bit better shot. So I actually started to feel like I needed a break because all I was doing was working. So I went and bought a dragster from a guy um, and and I, and I don't share with a lot of people. So I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody. The car just showed up at our house. And my wife asked me, she goes, what's that? I go, that's my new race car. And she's like, you sure? And I'm like, and the great thing, my wife has always been very supportive. Always been supportive. We, we're, we're still best friends, 40 years together. We just, it, it's just amazing. I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because of how we get along. It's, it's really awesome so this is the thing that Hispanic culture has taught me if one person can do it another person can do it so in our area all the Caucasian guys used to have be able to do it and I never we, we were the poor people we couldn't go do it so I saw them doing it and I'm like and, and, and I never put color in color in my world and I, but I always saw that the rich people got to go do things, but we couldn't go do it. Why? So I, I wanted to make sure that I changed that. I can do whatever I want to do if we work hard and work smart. You know, we work smart, don't make mistakes. People make mistakes. That's what slows them down in life. So I decided that I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go after what we want. And there is nothing in this world that you can't obtain if you want it. You know, the only thing that's stopping you is you. And then that's from materialistic to happiness, to harmony, to anything. So we, we, went, we went to a couple of races and I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it and we had fun and we, I was doing it. It was my escape from the 20 hour days, seven day a week thing. It was my escape. So when I sat in the car, so the honest real reason why I went racing is when I would sit in the car, the whole world would get quiet. My brain would shut off because I can't turn my brain off still to this day, almost 60 years old. 
it still runs like crazy. Um, but when I'm in the car, my brain turns off. And it's the godliest, quietest place, even though the car is on and noisy, and it's the closest to the edge you can get for me. And that's why that's how I started. And how old were you when you started? Jesus, I was in my... That's 20 years ago. 40s? 20 years ago? Like probably like 40s. Late 40s. That's when people start, you know, a whole new career. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's daughters have by now memorized their father's idiosyncrasies. Their dad's fastidious nature harkens to another era when you woke up just a bit earlier to ensure that the pleats were pressed as stiff as a board. Well, what I, you know, what I did was we just did it for fun. We just did it for fun, but when I do things, so, so you know, growing up with Goodwill clothes, uh, Salvation Army clothes, and the, so the Goodwill clothes and the Sawunda clothes, um, everything I touched, I don't care. This is what my dad did teach me. I don't care if it's a used pair of shoes. You shine them up, you clean them, you make sure they're pressed, your clothes are pressed, everything that you have, you take care of it all the time so still to this day my work clothes i press every morning before i walk out my shoes are clean everything's everything's a certain way because it's it's a lifestyle it's a method it's who you are it's how you got here so kind of really funny i have a method of doing everything that works for me and i don't want to change it i have a certain spoon i eat with i have a certain fork i eat with i have a certain things that i do every day because it works and I don't change it. I've tried changing and it doesn't work for me. And if I stick to my game, I call it playing the game. I play Mike's game and it works really good. On anything I touch, it'll work. But if I change, I use that same ideology and methodology. If I change it, it doesn't work. That's funny. Uh, Jasmine, uh, does anything come to mind, I guess, as far as those idiosyncrasies or anything like that? Uh, that your dad might have? Um, <laughs> I mean... Good all day. We're all here pieces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the spoon is definitely a big thing. Um, yeah, I just... I mean, yeah, there's so many... It's just, I think just everything he does with his life, it's always been very particular, and it's definitely passed on onto us. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's good or bad, um, but just, yeah, from like the way your shoes are organized and lined up, but it's, it's, sometimes it feels a little excessive, but uh, now that I'm older and I've just seen that it's definitely shows up now and just how I do everything, just being conscious and aware of all of your actions, details, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's a, it's a nice structure for, especially if you never had structure growing up, creating that own structure and that sense of guidelines definitely helps and it's shown up in my life so many times. There is a Malcolm Gladwell maxim that states you only really perfect something if you practice it over a period of 10,000 hours, pounding away muscle memory over the course of constant routine. But the Salinas family is extraordinary and aren't stunted by the usual fear that comes from not yet perfecting something. Jasmine Salinas took a trip to find herself after college. When she was done, she discovered that while she didn't want to be in one family business, her calling was in another. 
And I definitely want to, you know, talk about your career and your trajectory. When did it start for you? Um, you know, when did, yeah, when did, when did kind of the, the racing bug hit you and, and where did it start and how hard was it starting out? Yeah. Um, so, um, myself along with my three younger sisters, we all started racing, uh, junior drag racing, um, around the time my dad was running his nostalgia dragster. And so at the time everybody was just kind of doing it for fun. And I remember he asked us, he's like, do you guys want to go racing? And he like took us to the racetrack and showed all these kids in these smaller version cars. And we got really excited. And so we all tried to get into it and we're running the cars on the weekends, but our closest racetrack was two and a half, three hours away. So it wasn't something that we could do as consistently as most of the other kids who are out racing. So we kind of like got our feet wet into it, but um, I only did it for like two years, kind of only had a couple races, but I, when I was doing it as a kid, I was kind of like the same thing. It was like this place where I felt like I belonged and I, I tried every single sport. Like even I tried out for all the boys sports growing up, you know, and just like every activity trying to find something that just felt like this is where I belong. And racing was the only thing that kind of like felt like that for me. And so throughout high school and college, I'd always wanted to continue racing, but my parents are smart and said I needed to finish school first. And then after college, then I can um, go racing. And so I graduated from college in 2014 and I came and worked for the family business for a couple of years. And then I was uh, the first one to decide I wanted to leave the family business and try something else. And um, so I thought, I just kind of asked myself, I was like, what am I going to do that's going to make me happy? Instead of like trying to think like, what is something that's going to get me a better job or a better paycheck? Like what is the path that I'm going to be happy waking up doing. And so I took a trip, came back. And then my dad at the same time decided to start getting into top fuel racing. She, she left on a backpack, <laughs> backpack trip for how many, how long? A month and a half by myself, my first solo trip. So she went to <laughs> Indonesia. Where'd you go? Yeah, I went to uh, my mom's Dutch Indonesian. Okay. And so I went back to uh, her side of the family um, to Jakarta, And then I went to Singapore and Taiwan just to, do every typical early 20 year old figure out your life. <laughs> Find yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um did that, came back, and I was like on this like quest for like continuing trying to find things that make me happy. And at the same time, my dad was getting back into racing. And so I asked him if I can come work for his race team. Um and I started off working in the race shop, filing paperwork, and then the crew guy started teaching me how to work on the cars. And before that, I like really didn't know how to do much like with anything. Like I barely knew what a screwdriver was. And I ended up going on the road with them for two years and traveling to all the races. And by the end of my two years, I was building superchargers on his car. And I had something about, I guess, being on the other side from a driver to working on the car and seeing that what you put into something and learning about it and seeing what you're capable of doing and kind of like creating this magic with the cars. Um, that kind of like inspired me and like inside of this little excitement again for racing and made me want to be a part of it. And so after those two years of working on his car, um, we decided that I wanted to try to get into racing again um, as a driver. 
And so uh, we got licensed in a super comp just to kind of see how it was. Cause I kind of really hadn't raced, honestly. Like I did the junior cars, but it didn't really count. She did nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, and then I did a year of testing, but I honestly kind of just, after a year of testing, just jumped right into top alcohol dragster. And most people, it's a long progressive, you know, they have like, by the time they're in top alcohol, they're like, have 20 something, 30 something years of racing. And I- <laughs> so, 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 so talk about the 10,000 hours and you were just like, all right. Something, something about our family. That thing going back to if one person can do it, another one can do it. So I know my girls. We are kind of, I would say, hard-headed and stubborn, and we persevere for what we believe in. And if you believe you can do something, put 120% in and put the time in, and, and you can achieve your goals. So Jasmine went from driving a streetcar to a car that went 112 miles an hour to get her super comp license, to a car that goes 100 and, um, excuse me, so now she goes 280. So she went, she jumped in a race car that, I want to honestly tell you that I was not nervous. She jumped in the race car and her first 280 mile an hour pass, I'm like, wow, she's awesome. You know, cause from not being racing, People just don't do that. Mm. But our family, we all have that same <laughs> same thing where that person does it, I can go do it. We'll figure it out on the way. You know? No, it sounds like you, you know, your family has that that, you know, there's an aha moment. I'm just gonna seize the opportunity. Uh, Jasmine, how was it what was it like that first time we were like, okay, I'm just gonna jump in and I'm just gonna do it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's <laughs> there's definitely a lot of fears coming from all different angles. I mean First of all, the cars the category that I'm in, it's basically the second fastest category under my dad, Top Fuel, which are the fastest cars on the planet. I'm going zero to 280 in under five or under six seconds. Um, so yeah, there's a huge danger element to it just to begin with. So that whole factor of getting over any fears of like that people crash and there's been deaths, there's been very horrible uh, injuries and accidents. And so just that in itself, something mentally to try to get over but then the other side of it in addition to that for me was just everybody that I basically talked to when I first told them I want to start doing it said I wasn't ready I needed more practice I needed years of experience and in their defense they were probably right you know and looking back on it I'm I mean it wouldn't have hurt me to have taken time and gone and did it the way everybody else does Mike Salinas is very much like any proud father, quick with an interjection, much to the lighthearted eye roll of his daughters. While compliments don't come easy for him, he is more than generous going on and on about their accomplishments to others. A proud papa boasting to the world. Gianna, you know, same question, you know, where'd you start? <laughs> but also you, you, you know, every one of your family is kind of doing something different. And for your career, you know, within racing, you're doing something different. Where did that begin? First, first, um, before she starts, this was my daughter that was wearing dresses, and she was just, she, she was just really, 
uh, girling, I would say. And the other I ones were kind of tomboyish, but she was really girly. And for the life of me, she walked up and she asked me if she can come, if I can come with her to the front to look at what she wants to do. So we went and looked at all different types of classes. And then, she, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I think it all started with my love for motorcycles. Um, Which so I never knew about. Michael, our father, rode motorcycles growing up. His family rode motorcycles. His mom rode motorcycles. And there is this amazing photo of her just on a sportster. And she was like maybe in her 40s, 50s. And I was just, wow, she looks so cool. And I always, always wanted to ride motorcycles. And I think all of us did. And then we would always tell our parents and they're like, no, like you're not getting on two wheels. That's too dangerous. Like that's never going to happen. And we're like, okay. Okay. So then when I turned 18, I decided, I was like, they only have so much say. <laughs> so, um, myself and our, the other sister Jacqueline that's in between us, her and I decided to go get our license together. And then we ended up passing and well, we went back. Before that, you want to tell him what you guys told me? So no, this so after we got our license, we went and we told him, um, pretty much, you know, you can either support our decision. All four of them at the same time. You can either support our decision or, you know, you can choose to not. But this is what <laughs> we're going to do. Um, and it actually ended up working out very well for him because he, this whole passion for his motorcycles came back and he went crazy with bikes again. Um, so he started riding again. And he had stopped riding once my mom had Jasmine because um, they needed to sell the bike. Um, but after that, I pretty much rode for about a year. And then from there, just my passion for motorcycles just completely took off. And then I knew that I didn't want, um, I'll be honest, actually, I really didn't even want to race. Um, originally, when I had first been around it, I had a hard time uh, with everybody that was out there, the constant traveling. You know, I was just in college and I really wanted to focus on school and kind of do my own thing. Um, but then, at the time I had, I remember I was just walking around the track and a lady on a motorcycle passed me. And I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, she looks so cool. And she was all in leather. She had her helmet, her bike looked amazing. Um, and she actually ended up becoming my mentor, uh, which is Karen Stouffer. Um, and after that, I, I, then I went to my dad and I told him, I was like, you know, and he kept asking, he's like, would you, you know, do you want to start racing? And I kept, I was like, yeah, but you know, I would only do the bikes. Like, you know, I would only ever go into the bikes. And then that class out there is probably one of the most difficult classes to compete in um, for a couple reasons. I mean, one, you're on a bike. Um, two, these bikes are going from zero to almost 200 in less than seven seconds. Um, and just the amount of skill that it takes to get the bike to go down the track. Most of these riders have been riding since they're 15, 16 years old professionally. And here I come a year on a street bike, have yeah. having no idea what I'm doing and saying, yeah, you know, what? I want to, I want to ride. Um, so we were very lucky to be able to end up working with a group that had a training program. So, um, and that's who, actually who I run with right now. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> Actually, the first time she sat on the bike, 
we decided we're going to go with this group and she sat on the bike, just sitting on the bike. And they pushed her a couple of, not even a foot and she fell off the bike. And we all looked at each other like, oh my God. And well, it was foreshadowing for my first <laughs> They didn't realize, and she's never been on a, they never rode bikes. They never did any of these things. But the coolest part that empowering women. So Jasmine owns her own team. We showed Jasmine how to buy her team. Okay, so Jasmine is the owner of her team. We sponsor her, but she owns her own car. She owns it. And Gianna, it's not out yet, but Gianna is purchasing the motorcycle team that she went and rode for. So they're going to ride for us, and they're going to be employed by us. So Gianna will own her own team. Jasmine own, owns her own team, and I own my own team. But together, we have a group. And then we have one more daughter that's going to come on in to race also. We'll start off where Jasmine's at as Jasmine moves up. So there'll be four of us racing, but the lessons that we're learning from business and family and life is they own their team. So a lot of the people out there don't own the teams, the drivers. A lot of them are just drivers. You know, they're paying to drive or, you know, but, but the girls with work ethics, hard work, and just a little bit of help from mom and dad, we showed them how to do certain things. So like literally Gianna made payments to them to do these things from her checking account, not from mine. Mm -hmm. So they're not spoiled little kids where they got to go do this stuff. We showed them the, how to do this. Mm -hmm. So Gianna is going to be the first individual young person that owns a team where she has two riders driving for her now, yeah. which is going to be really nice. And, and it's a good role model deal mm -hmm. for everybody. You know what I mean? The Top Fuel racing circuit is exciting. It's hard not to get thoroughly wrapped up in the fumes and sound of cars exploding at over 300 miles per hour, covering 1,000 feet in four seconds. What it lacks, however, is diversity. Scrappers Racing is very literally changing the face of racing. All that after the break. And, um, you know, I don't want to take too much more of you guys' time, but this has been so fascinating. Um, you know, Latina representation, you know, I think that's a big part of this story um, because not just in the sport where it's like, of course, you know, um, you know, women can, can do this, uh, but also, you know, Latina representation. How much of that did you get from your family? I think for, um, at least in terms of representation in the class, um, I think in the racing community, uh, it's extremely important because that was one thing I always remember. We always had women to look up to in racing, but there was very few women of color to look up to. And that was something um, really important. I think Jasmine and I both had this conversation that when we go to the track, we have to understand that it's, it's not just, we're not there just for us. You know, there are young girls, young girls of color that are looking up to this and now seeing women that look like them that they've never seen out there before, knowing that they can do this too. And it's everything from like wearing our hair naturally. <laughs> we, that <laughs> was a really big thing for us because, yeah. you know, it's 
a lot of people don't realize how important it is to give children role models that look like them because it makes a huge impact. They're so much more likely to go towards that and to understand that they can achieve what they're doing as well. And it's just to know that we have the opportunity to be role models for young girls of color. It's extremely important that we take that advantage and that opportunity and, you know, we do something with it. Oh, well, well, one thing too is we're racing 24 races in middle America, the heartland of America, predominantly Caucasian. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, Basically, I'm one of very few people that are able to do it at this level. Mm -hmm. And currently, I am the only Hispanic top fuel driver. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is the only Hispanic motorcycle rider right now. As of right now. And she is the only Hispanic um, top alcohol dragster driver. Mm -hmm. So our whole family, there is not a family out there that is doing what we're doing like what we're doing. So it, it's a little different. And what's really funny is we were in Tennessee and um, and I had people, Caucasian people coming up and speaking Spanish to me and they're you know, talking to us and I'm looking at them. It's just so weird, you know, because they, they were pleasant, they were nice. And, and, and one thing that I will tell you, I would say 99% of the time we were accepted very well out there because of who we surrounded ourselves with. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we went and hired the champions of the sport to train us and teach us and go. So we went right to the top mm-hmm. with, with this stuff. We, so we tried to hire the best people to teach us that had respect and this type of thing in, in the sport mm-hmm. to teach us how to do this. But, um, it, it is a hard sell out there and in certain areas we would like and when we go to houston texas we get a lot of mexican guys to come from mexico to come and see us because there's a race family it's called salinas that's coming in so we have a there's a whole group of them come with motorhomes out there and they park and i mean they travel they travel a couple of days to get to where they're at to come and see us and every year they come and hang out with us you know they want us to go to their little barbecue and hang out and i mean there's 25 motorhomes there from people from Mexico that came. It's really cool. That's amazing. You know? And now they have somebody that they can cheer for. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And then um, Jasmine, yeah, I just want to get your perspective too on, um, you know, not just being a woman in the sport, but a woman of color. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's an interesting to navigate. Um, it's when I first started racing, I had somebody tell me. Um, if you want to make it in the sport, you have to be the whitest Latina or whitest Mexican that you can be um, to not really show so much pride in your heritage or your background. Don't speak about race. Just try to blend in. And being a woman in a male-dominated sport is already challenging enough as it is, but then having that extra layer be put upon you, um, it, it, it's challenging, you know. Um, and there are definitely moments like the the hair thing, you know, it's something, it's just something little like that that you don't think about, but it's something that was was a huge turning point for me having that conversation with my sister because for the longest time, for most of my life, I've been straightening my hair and doing little things like that. And, you know, it was easier and more convenient. But when I realized that there wasn't a, growing up and seeing racing, there wasn't a single woman that looked like me you know, and walking around the pits and 
realizing there's not another, there's women, but there's not anybody that even closely resembles somebody that looks like me, except the people picking up the trash, you know, at the racetracks. And that's how it's been for most of our life is the only people that looks like us aren't the ones in the positions of power. And so for me, I realized in that moment that this was a very unique opportunity and something that I didn't want to go to waste and that I had to do something more with it, not just for myself, but for others. Um, we were always taught that when you have some sort of power or some sort of privilege, you pass that on to other people. You don't hold on to it. Um, and for us, I think that's how we view our position in racing is that this is an opportunity, even if it's not for the rest of the world or everyone outside of racing, we hope to you know expand our positions so that we can influence and reach other people outside of the sport as well. But um, yeah, being a woman and a Latina, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting journey. It's, um, I am so thankful and privileged to be in the position that I'm in and I love all the challenges that comes with it. It doesn't make it easy, um, sometimes, but it's, uh, and I think there's always that one person that kind of has to go through. And there was definitely plenty of women and plenty of other people of color before us that definitely made it to where we're at today. It's a lot easier than I know it was for them. Um, you know, like I can imagine my grandfather, you know, being the only Hispanic man at the time in like the fifties, you know, that must've been completely different versus what we experience now. And, you know, we still get some little passive aggressive things every now and then, but that's as a woman or as a person of color, you're, you're used to that, you know? And um, I, I, I hope that our journey being Latinas in this sport can hopefully reach out to other people, even outside of the sport and just kind of, like I said, show some sort of representation and show that, yeah, it's sometimes it's okay if you're the only person there, but that doesn't mean you're going to be the last. The Enfuego podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. And next week, we have the pleasure of chatting with Walter Thompson Hernandez, a writer who has covered a wealth of cultural topics, including the Compton Cowboys. His is a beautiful story that is distinctly American. Enjoy your week and make sure to find us online at si.com backslash and fuego. <laughs>